0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: I don't actually have any reason to believe that at least at the beginning of the year, the pace of activity is gonna slow down in 2023.
0: Welcome to The Exchange, conversations with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Jonathan Guilford, a columnist at Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Thomson Reuters. For this week's episode, I sat down with Chris Couvelier, Managing Director at Investment Bank Lazard, where he's a member of the Capital Markets Advisory Team with a focus on prepping companies on how to deal with activist shareholders. We talked about how inflation and geopolitical crises have reshaped investor demands, how corporate titans might be vulnerable to fresh-faced activist whale hunters, and how new voting rules might shape campaigns in the year ahead. Hi, Chris, and welcome to The Exchange.
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me.
0: So just before we get into this conversation, um, can you explain a little your role within Lazard?
1: Yeah, certainly. So I'm a managing director within Lazard's Capital Markets Advisory Group. My practice focuses exclusively on shareholder activism, uh, and that is both preparing companies for potential shareholder activism and assisting companies in defending against live shareholder activism when it does occur. With that in mind, it's been a a very busy year.
0: I bet, right? If I'm thinking about everything that's been affecting companies kind of across the year, you know, we had deepening inflation and the Fed responding with a sort of historically rapid pace of interest rate rises. We had the crisis in Ukraine reshaping global trade and, you know, with especially severe consequences in the energy sector. We saw equity and credit markets take a tumble. So just kind of taking all that as scene setting here, I mean, how did that affect activism and companies' responses to it over the past year?
1: yeah it's it's a great question and i think um a really interesting place to start is kind of comparing where we were when we entered 2022 with where we are entering 2023 so as, as we entered 2022 we were coming off two relatively down years of new activity uh shareholder activism wise activity in the u.s was particularly slow Uh, But globally, there was a slowdown in in new activism, largely as a result of the pandemic. Um, A lot of it having to do, I think, with activists just not wanting to seem opportunistic at a time when companies were appropriately focusing on, you know, important things like employee health and safety and and work from home and the like Um, universal proxy had been adopted in late. 2021, but hadn't yet gone into effect. Um, The Fed hadn't started any rate increases. The Ukraine war hadn't commenced. So it was a very different environment. And activism, I think, as a result, was a bit of a coiled spring um, heading into 2022. And what we ended up seeing, uh, unsurprisingly, was activism happening at a record clip over the course of the year. So with that coiled spring heading into the first quarter, the first quarter actually ended up being a record for the single busiest quarter of new activity, according to Lazard's data. And even as the macro environment changed as the year progressed, um, every single quarter in 2022, including the, the fourth quarter where we're still, the ink is still drying on our, on our official data, but every single quarter saw a material increase relative to its analogous quarter in 2021. And for the entire year, it's looking as though the activity in 2022 was over a third more than it was in 2021, so clearly a, a robust year that didn't seem to have been dulled much by the um, – what, what I might call deteriorating macro conditions. Compare that to where we are now, so I, I don't want to underplay how much the macro overlay has changed. There's There's no denying that, but my first observation is really that activists appear to be weathering these change conditions um, relatively well. You haven't seen a ton of stories yet speculating that you know activist performance is lagging or that redemptions are poised to spike um, or that activist funds are at, at risk of shuttering entirely. Um, most activists know this environment and they are savvy and, and well hedged and still have lots of dry powder to put to use. So. Even if the spring now isn't quite as coiled as it was heading into 2022, I don't actually have any reason to believe that at least at the beginning of the year, the pace of activity is going to slow down in 2023, um, even when whole sectors undergo valuation resets, which is something we've been observing over the past couple of quarters. Activists are are always able to pick the winners from the losers and identify low-hanging fruit and, and cases for change. And with the universal proxy now, not just a hypothetical, but but the law of the land and the fact that so many companies have their advance notice deadlines in the first quarter, I actually think this coming Q1, Q1 of 23, is going to be poised to be super active. Um, I do think what you might start seeing is a bit of a, a shift in, in where we see uh, activists spending their time sector-wise, and you might see a shift in what activists are asking for. But in terms of overall level of activity, um, I haven't yet seen, and I don't, I don't really expect a material decline in activity as a result of uh, of macro. I would say as a broad category.
0: Right, and when I kind of think about the moving pieces that you've identified there, right, like the the kind of sector shift that you might see or the kind of changes in the asks. I mean, when I I think of kind of like the big story of 2022, it was essentially like tech coming off the boil, right? It was a lot of these companies at extremely high multiples kind of falling off their pedestals. And then a lot of those kind of either look like those, uh, you know, targets ready to be pounced on by uh, a sponsor, or they look like kind of tempting activist targets. And is that still really the case in 23? Or do you see maybe like a shift kind of beyond tech and kind of really like broadening that that um, that kind of envelope? I do still
1: think uh, there's a lot of room uh, for activists to target tech companies. Uh, so that that remains close to the top of my list in terms of sectors I'm watching uh, for activism, and it's it's exactly for the reason you mentioned. So after years and years of valuation multiples that offered precious few entry points for activists, um, they now have this really unique opportunity to to enter um, you know at a, at a less overvalued state with ideas for change that wouldn't necessarily have have flown in an environment where boundless growth was treated by the market as, as an untouchable business model. So tech I think is, is poised to see a lot more activism still. Um, it's, it's tough. All, I mean, I, I got a lot of questions about what are you thinking about activism in the energy sector um, just because it's so related to some of the, the macro changes that have occurred. And it's, it's really tough to handicap oil and gas activism because it's so, heavily levered at the end of the day to the commodity price environment. Um, we did see more activists jumping into oil and gas stocks over the course of 2022, even if not yet formally launching new campaigns. Um, and we chalked that up really to kind of jumping in at, at a time when the cash flow generation profiles of some of those oil and gas stocks um, seem to be improving over recent quarters. So there are activists invested in the oil and gas sector. So we're keeping an eye on that as as a sector where new campaigns could be launched. But at the end of the day, I think um, a lot of the focus is going to remain on, on tech.
0: Right. And it's interesting because you mentioned the uh, kind of cash flow position of energy improving a lot over the past year. Uh, And, you know, obviously the oil and gas boom over the previous decade was the place where cash flow went to die quite often. It's I kind of wonder, as some of these companies like their profile improves, is that always sort of a sitting duck for an activist to come in and say you should be kicking that cash out to shareholders? Or now that there are worries about you know, say, has the Fed pushed the uh, pushed the levers too far? Are we heading towards a recession? Is there kind of an argument for companies to be saying, like, there needs to be some sort of cushion or recession-proofing to the business here? I'm just wondering if, you know, whether that kind of cash return argument gets dulled a little if people are worried about a potential recession.
1: I think that's an interesting observation. You did have a lot of companies coming out of COVID with, if not absolute record, certainly close to record cash hoards. Um, and we were watching that as potential catnip for activism, but actually what we observed was most companies, um, did a fairly good job of articulating what their capital allocation priorities were. I think in large part out of fear that not doing that proactively would result in activism. So I guess what I would say is, um, if you are a company that has not kind of clearly articulated a, a capital allocation roadmap, and you do have an improved cash flow profile, um, you are you are likely a sitting duck for activism, assuming a bunch of other things are are also true. But it's tough to overgeneralize, I think, about capital allocation because it's so it's so company specific. And as I say, it's something that companies have been. Sort of attuned to for some time um, because it is sort of activism 101. You know, increase the dividend, buy back more shares. So I think companies have gotten a little savvier at predicting what the activist might say and and preparing accordingly.
0: And do you think any of that kind of plays into the CapEx cycle we're in, right? Because we're seeing a ton of investment, or at least investment needs, across a few industries here. Like, do you think that changes the conversation a little bit? Or is that really, like you say, just
1: part of putting out a clear roadmap? I think, so CapEx, I think, depending on the sector, is a is a really important part of the roadmap. Um, and again, depending on the sector, I think... Um, the activist and and the company's other investors are going to have a really clear understanding of what portion of cash flow needs to be held back for capex so i don't think you're going to see you know frivolous demands for buybacks or increased dividends at a company where capex particularly you know entering this part of the cycle is is more important for example um that's just not going to that's just not going to win the day with with other shareholders. So activists have gotten pretty smart, I would say, at at picking their spots,
0: right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I mean, there are kind of um there was another side to this, I think when you look at uh, kind of the macro and what's been been happening to these companies, you have you know these favorite sectors like energy that are, uh, suddenly have this cash flow that they need to decide what to do with. Um, The other side, of course, like we were talking about with tech, is you're going to see a lot of uh, sagging share prices. You're going to see uh, a lot of companies maybe kind of coming under pressure to sell. I just kind of wonder, because there's um, kind of forces coming from both sides here, right? You could get pressure to sell and to find a buyer and to, to execute on something. But at the same time, we've seen some of these kind of almost sell at the bottom transactions pick up some shareholder discontent, right? Uh, a few of the tech names, you know, with, uh, mostly to kind of sponsor buyers. We've seen some shareholders begin to kick up a fuss about that, even if they haven't necessarily been super successful. I mean, how do you see that evolving? I'm just wondering kind of where that tension ends up resolving.
1: The relationship, I think, between the M&A market backdrop and the level of activist activity is, is something we've been looking at really closely. Um, because I think, uh, a common and, and frankly logical hypothesis is that um, you know m a related activism would ebb and flow according to the the a the broader M a backdrop. Um, but that's actually not what we saw over the course of of 22. So just to kind of take a step back, overall campaigns with an M a related objective according to our data um, accounted for about forty percent of all activist campaigns. In 2022, um, and that was only a slight tick downwards from historical levels, notwithstanding the fact that you know the M&A market materially slowed down over the course of the year, and actually the the single quarter of the year in which M&A accounted for the smallest share of overall activist activity was was Q1. Um, interestingly, when you know recessionary and inflationary concerns weren't quite as rampant as they were uh in other quarters of the year so the the one kind of m a campaign that does probably ebb and flow according to levels of m a activity is is what we call the scuttle sweeten campaign where an activist is is pushing for a deal to be called off or, or for an improved deal um fewer deals being announced obviously means fewer deals to criticize but um but a bad deal is still always subject to criticism by activists so there's not really a one-to-one correspondence between the state of the m M&A and market at any given time and the, the level of, of M&A-related activism. Um, part of why that is, I think, is that activists aren't necessarily looking at the current m and backdrop at any given point in time when they're considering whether to launch a new campaign. Um for a for a company, for example, that's in a sector that's ripe for consolidation, that and that company hasn't presented an attractive valuation entry point until right this minute. Um, and the fact that a sale process is going to take a while to unfold anyways, I, that's not going to keep an activist at bay just because, you know, MA volume is low right now and it's a challenging rate environment and, you know, et cetera. So we're, we are predicting uh, that even with the mA market where it is m; related activism is going to remain um, if not the most common demand certainly one of the most common demands and one of the things I think you might start to see we're, we're talking about mA like it's always sell the whole company but there's many different flavors to m;A activism and one of the one of the categories I would say that we're looking at most closely is the kind of break up campaign um, where it's not about sell the whole company. It's about sell a a line of business or sell a non-core asset. And that's an interesting category because I think you could take the view that in a challenged, in a challenged market environment, companies that have business lines that are, you know, extremely disparate or somewhat disparate, those are going to be more heavily scrutinized, I think by, you know, investors of all stripes, including activists. So they're going to be under greater pressure, I think, to prove to the market that having the disparate lines together in one company is actually value enhancing for shareholders. And companies that aren't able to do that um, and that suffer performance-wise, I think, are going to be subject to to increased levels of activism. And, and we did actually see that over the course of 2022 as the as the market environment deteriorated, the portion of MA activism accounted for by that kind of breakup campaign category actually increased. And in in Q four breakup was actually the single most common MA demand. So that's something we're we're expecting to continue heading into uh to twenty twenty three.
0: Right, and I'm guessing that kind of stuff is leaning into what's happening in the broader market as well, right? Like in a rising rate environment, especially if you've got uh, a lot of floating rate leverage on a company, you know, taking a chance to deleverage with some of these these spins or sales. I'm guessing is kind of fits into the broader focus on cash flow, right?
1: Yeah, I think it all. I think that's all internally consistent. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then when you're looking at the the kind of sweeten and scuttle campaigns that you were mentioning. I'm guessing some of the downtrend there as well is going to be just you know it may be that you don't see M and A asks in just because the market is rough, but that you do see a greater risk on the downside from from fighting back against an announced deal, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think if you actually pull back the curtain on the scuttle Sweden campaigns we saw this year, um, the sorts of activists that Kind of registered this kind of opposition um, it was a lot of first-time names it wasn't necessarily the established blue chip players um, and so I think that that accounted for a, a lower share of overall A activism and also I think accounted for the fact that many of the campaigns in that category we saw this year weren't necessarily as successful but as I say if it's a if it's a bad deal um, and it's a credible activist that takes note, um, I think that remains a really potent, potent combination that the company should be worried about.
0: Right. And I'm guessing like just as the market in general keeps digesting the valuation reset, there's still some rump of those kind of longer term holders, like you say, not like brand name activists, but folks who have been in a stock for a long time and are maybe going to be unhappy about a deal that have, you know, a slightly different incentive set from a typical activist or, you know, event driven guys in general. Right
1: yeah i do think that's spot on um and really that's kind of a a key theme to have in mind when you know when when advising a company on activism matters so if if they are staying close to all of their other shareholders and have a a good sense of what would or would not fly with them that's going to materially enhance you know the the their ability to push back against an activist when they come with an idea that that the company doesn't necessarily want to want to proceed with so where you start running into trouble is when you haven't, you know, kept up robust shareholder engagement practices and you don't necessarily know where each of your top ten or twenty shareholders would land on, you know, on a particular activist proposal. Um, that kind of daylight between a company and its shareholders is is real fodder for an activist,
0: gotcha, yeah. And I mean, stepping back from that, right? So that's kind of the m and a piece of all of this. And the backdrop that we're looking at here is, you know, this rising rate environment, a lot of these sectors getting crushed in terms of valuation, but that has implications for business models too, right? Like, you know, you kind of see a refocus away from, uh, let's say, kind of growthier, techier strategies towards a focus on cash flow and kind of safety, essentially. And I just wonder if that kind of opens up the opportunity for different kinds of campaigns, especially maybe at some of the big, you know, like even the mega caps where you might have, you know, kind of big strategic shifts that people see as necessary for them to adapt to kind of what's going on. Like, do you think the kind of the field of what's possible there begins to change in 23?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's absolutely true that, you know, mega cap status or sort of Household name status or national champion status isn't a moat to activism. We've seen plenty of examples uh, in the U.S. and Europe of you know really really high profile mega cap companies um, falling subject to activism. I, I think it's tough to generalize too much about market cap. I don't think a company uh, is or isn't um, you know more likely to be hit by activism because of its size. Um, but, I do think current market conditions um, are such that there are potentially interesting valuation entry points at some of these larger cap companies that um, that might have felt a little more secure over the past couple of years um in terms of what you might ask for at a comp- at a at a mega cap national champion type company um I do think we have seen an uptick in campaigns focused more on strategy and operations, which is, has been an interesting trend to observe over the course of 2022. Actually, in every single quarter of 22, we saw a slight increase in the share of campaigns focused on strategy and operations. What's interesting about those um, are that they are a slightly longer putt, I guess I would say, than M&A. Uh, as far as activist objectives are concerned. so with an m and a focus campaign, it you show up, you make the m and a demand, the company you know announces it's launching a strategic review process, and the stock price bumps almost to the point where an activist can kind of take its gains and move on. Compare that to a campaign that's more focused on bigger pictures of uh, a bigger picture of strategy or operations. That requires a lot more work on the part of the activists to understand the underlying strategic or operational issues. And it also requires um, a lot more wait and see um, to make sure the company's going to enact certain changes and, and or for those changes to actually bear fruit. Uh, and even if they do, they might not, you know, they might not give rise to the sort of 20 to 30 percent return that an activist might need to make a situation worth its while. So at the margins, you're seeing a few more of these campaigns, but I think they remain challenging for an activist, um, particularly kind of the newer class of activists that might just be starting out and might not have the time and resources to really devote to doing that kind of, of homework, um, which can take several quarters or, or years even to do um, before actually showing up and launching a campaign.
0: Well, that's the thing, right, because some of this stuff, you know, I guess if, if you're an activist and you're going whale hunting, right, like that's a, an, an attempt to, I guess, stake a reputation or make a name for yourself in a certain way. But also, I'm guessing just on a credibility basis, you're going to listen more to an Elliot or an Icon or someone than that, than, than somebody new on the block, essentially. I mean, when you're thinking about credibility and how companies are thinking about activists coming with these strategy asks, like, how are they gaming that out?
1: Yeah, well, I do think the identity of the activist is is an important consideration. One of the interesting things we saw this year was a real kind of barbell distribution, I guess, in terms of who was launching the campaign. So on the one hand, um, kind of the, the Activist League table continued to feature a lot of the, the perennial, you know, biggest names, Elliot, Starboard, Icon, all still amongst the top ten. But you also have this phenomenon where um, something like 35 to 40 percent of all the campaigns launched uh, in 2022 were launched by activists doing it for the very first time Uh, and those first timers were an interesting mix of um, sort of brand new hedge funds brand new hedge funds in some cases started by alumni of established activists um, but also Traditional institutional shareholders that were kind of dipping their toes in activism for the very first time. So when you think about what a first timer is is looking for in its in its first campaign, I think even more important um, for its reputation and for its future fundraising abilities uh, is going after a target where it can be successful, even if going after a you know a, a whale type target might be newsworthy and, and get a lot of clicks um more important i think to the first timer is is making sure it's it's found a target where it can actually get its ideas and uh, for change enacted at the company so a whale is off limits um particularly if there is kind of a, a clear-cut case for change that the activist can can make um, But I think you often find activists, particularly first-timers, more willing to go after small and mid-cap names where they can, say, take a larger stake um, and they might be able to sell the case better to to those companies' shareholders. So from a company perspective, um, we always urge our clients to take just as seriously the the threats from first-timers as from the established names. Because at the end of the day, if if you do find yourself in a tussle with a first-timer, it's the case that that first-timer, you know, might have their whole fundraising future and and reputation on the line, and they don't have a track record of behavior to point to. And that actually makes them um, a bit more unpredictable and volatile than than some of the established names. Um, The established names, by contrast, uh, are slightly better known quantities. for better or for worse. Um, and I think instantly the better known activists, when they show up, they get a lot more attention from from the board and management. But at the end of the day, I think both kinds of activists have the potential to take up a lot of management time and, and resources. And so that the exact same sorts of preparedness tactics um, apply to both kinds of activists.
0: Right. And I mean, just in terms of some of those first-timers, I do kind of wonder... To what extent are we seeing sort of generational turnover among the activists? You know, you kind of mentioned some of the the proteges of the big guys going off and starting their own shops. I mean, is that kind of speeding up? Are we seeing like a new generation emerge? Or is it really just kind of a, a kind of rolling rollover that we see, um, just a regular churn of, of new folks rising up?
1: Yeah, I I think it's more the latter. I'm actually more um I'm actually more shocked, I guess I would say, at the at the staying power of um, of some of the original guard, um, so the fact, for example, that a, that an icon is still launching five campaigns a year and is cracking the top ten of most active activists, I think is really notable. Starboard and Elliot, for about as long as we've been tracking the data, have been um, you know going back and forth at number one or number two most activists, mo- most active activists in in any given year. The rise of the first time activists is really something that we started seeing a few years back, um, although as I say it it has never accounted for as much uh, as much a share of activists as it did this year. I think it's just I, I think it's kind of a steady state of the activist universe proliferating I, I don't think it's I don't think it's turnover per se. I think it's just the universe of activists kind of expanding year over year um, and I don't have any reason to think that's that's going to cease
0: right and I mean I'm kind of wondering because some of these guys rising up right you saw new stuff become salient like ESG or, or you know kind of really specifically within that environmental concerns I'm thinking obviously you know kind of Exxon engine number one felt like the big watershed moment when it happened uh, since then, it feels like some of those issues are a bit more politically contested, right? You had like the Texas hearings on ESG mm-hmm. and so on. And is this still somewhere where you think some of these younger funds might be looking to make a name, or is it something that you're going to see folks maybe back off a little bit just because it's becoming a little more controversial?
1: Yeah, we're we're having we're having a lot of discussions with our clients about this, and there's there's this interesting debate about whether. ESG is essentially uh, a luxury good that companies can can focus on um, <laughs> during boom times, but by the same token, it's acceptable not to focus on it when times uh, get a bit tougher, or, or so some would argue. Um, I I don't want to comment too much on specific situations, but I think the, the watershed example that you mentioned, um, one of the interesting kind of postmortems on that is that, people have come to realize, I think, that it was not fundamentally an, an ESG campaign. Yes, it, it had real a real ESG wrapper around it, but that wrapper surrounded sort of a, a bunch of more fundamental strategic and, and capital allocation issues. Um, so I, I am of the view that for an ESG campaign, a true ESG campaign where ESG is at the core of the activist demands, Um, For that to be successful, I think the activist needs to be able to draw a super clear link between the ESG issue and uh, an actual impact on shareholder value. Um, So it it can't just be academic or related to disclosure. It, it, It really needs to have a clear linkage to value for it to carry the day with other shareholders. And I think that's where some of the more ESG-centric campaigns from the past year may have faltered. Um, And you, you can read some of the ISS reports from those situations, and they've essentially said as much. I do think you're going to see ESG continue to be used by activists as, for lack of a better term, window dressing to try to appeal to certain constituencies or just to try to to tick the box. So every activist white paper, I think, is going to have a few ESG pages. Um, every, Every activist letter is going to have an ESG section. But I do think that's fundamentally different than the entire crux of a campaign really being an ESG issue. I also think this is an area where there is a bit of a divergence between what to expect in the U.S. and what to expect in Europe. I think in Europe, shareholder bases are a lot more accustomed to looking at and thinking about ESG issues through more of a shareholder value lens, where in the U.S., I think that's a slightly newer practice, so there isn't quite as much muscle memory. Um, but for the time being, in, in both jurisdictions, I think unless there is that clear tie between value and, and the ESG issue, it's going to be a tough sell, I think, to, to other shareholders.
0: Right, and I'm guessing just because of the nature of it, you know, if you're saying ESG is going to be most effective as a as a cudgel, let's say uh, in places where it relates to fundamental performance, I have to assume like that means really energy is where you could kind of see that rise again, right? Or is that maybe a, a, an overly hasty generalization?
1: No, I think I do think that's fair to say, um, and I think you've seen a lot of energy sector players kind of. Plan accordingly and beef up uh, ESG disclosures, um, and in in many cases, actual underlying ESG practices. You also, and so to extrapolate a little bit beyond oil and gas, I think sort of metals and mining. You've seen some campaigns, ESG focused campaigns, where the activist um, where the activist demand is portfolio related, but kind of with an ESG undertone. So separate, you know, good ESG assets from bad ESG assets and the like. And I do think that kind of campaign could arise in, in sectors other than energy. But yeah, at, at its core, I think you've you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's the energy sector that, that ought to be most concerned about that.
0: Right. And I guess energy as well just because it it's so fundamental to the corporate landscape, right? Like you look at the divergence between the US and Europe this year after what happened in Ukraine. Um, I'm just kind of wondering for activists looking at the two jurisdictions, like does that energy picture specifically, like the greater stress on energy markets the way that that feeds through to corporate performance, does that mean anything fundamental for what a European campaign looks like versus kind of what a US campaign looks like?
1: Yeah, so I do think. I mean, we 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 got a lot of questions about um, the impact of Russia-Ukraine on activism, um, and it it wasn't really the case that you. I mean, obviously, Ukraine was tied to broader macro dynamics, which which kind of flowed through activism at at large. But we didn't see Ukraine be too much of an idiosyncratic issue for activism, except in a couple of instances. So. There were a couple of cases where shareholders called on companies to um, shutter Russia operations, for example, um, but those are largely done at this point. I think the biggest impact probably was how campaigns across Europe were dispersed. So you did see, I think, a real decline in activism um, at targets in Germany, for example, where The share of of European activity accounted for by German targets was at multi-year low levels. And we do attribute that a lot to, you know, the relative over-reliance of the German economy on on Russian oil and gas. Um, By contrast, France, which is relatively more insulated in that regard, um, saw a much greater share of activity in Europe than it had in recent years. So certainly, for entire jurisdictions or for companies that are especially levered to, you know, what I would call the the Russia-Ukraine issue, um, you're likely to see activists sit that one out, I think, just because of the inherent underlying uncertainty. But it's tough to paint the whole continent with with a single brush. And if you look at jurisdictions outside of Germany, um, you actually saw in absolute terms in some cases, record numbers of, of campaigns being launched. So, activists have dry powder. Activists are capable of becoming experts at different jurisdictions. And I think if they find a value opportunity, they're not gonna they're not gonna stay at bay um, just because of uh, what will hopefully be a, a fleeting macro concern.
0: Gotcha. Right. And then just kind of rounding off, I guess, the U.S.-Europe differences, when I think in the U.S., the kind of big thing that I'm thinking about now is, you know, you mentioned earlier universal proxy rules and kind of how that's potentially changing just from a procedural perspective, how some of these campaigns work. Can you just step through, like, A, if you can just give kind of a capsule explanation of what the universal proxy change means, and then B, just kind of what you think Uh, just from kind of some of the early situations that we've had that where that has been a a factor kind of what you think this this could mean for activism in the US?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, at its core, the universal proxy rule change uh, affects the actual proxy card uh, that shareholders use to vote at an annual meeting. And Until the universal proxy was put into effect, uh, the US, I would say, was characterized by what what was criticized by many as a very archaic system where, in a proxy fight, the activist would send out a card that listed only its nominees and the company would send out a card that listed only the company's nominees. And as a shareholder, you only had the ability to choose one of those cards to vote on, which meant that there was no ability. Uh, for a shareholder to mix and match uh, across the activist card and the company card.
0: The universal
1: proxy changes that um, by mandating that all of the company's nominees and all of the activist nominees are listed on a single card. And all the activist needs to do is commit to meeting certain rather de minimis procedural thresholds in order to be able to take advantage of that. So they have to. Commit to soliciting two thirds of the uh, of the shares outstanding of a company um, and things like that. So it's it is actually a a huge change to the U.S. proxy voting system. I do think it remains to be seen a little bit exactly what effect that's going to have on the activist success rate. So clearly, it's it's lowered the bar, I would say, for an activist to launch a proxy fight or to to nominate directors um and i feel like i've been saying this now for for two whole years but we, we are still very much in in the early innings on this so you've had a single situation uh to my knowledge that has gone all the way to a final vote and in that situation iss ended up recommending uh for one of the activists two nominees and that activist nominee did end up being elected in the final vote. You also had another case where ISS and Glass-Lewis opined um, against the activist, and that that campaign was withdrawn before it went to a final vote. So we don't actually know how that would have shaken out. But there does appear to be a couple of takeaways so far. So first, I would say, and importantly, ISS and Glass-Lewis don't appear to be changing the way uh they are evaluating contested director elections so they they each have a very established framework that they use to evaluate proxy contests um, and that is essentially has the activist made a compelling case for change and are the activist nominees the best suited to deliver on that change so if there is no compelling case for change um the odds of an activist prevailing with ISS are are more or less dead on arrival I would say but in the example where ISS um, did recommend for one of the activist nominees and that activist nominee did end up getting elected um, ISS was was convinced that a compelling case for change had been made um, which then made it easy for ISS to recommend for one of ISS's uh, sorry for one of the activist nominees so, what I do think you're going to see is traditional activists, the more, you know, standard economic oriented activists um, are still going to have to make their compelling case for change, just as they always had. Um, another takeaway, based on the proxy disclosure that we've seen in, in the couple of cases um, that have gone close to a final vote so far, the costs of waging a proxy fight don't actually appear to have been significantly lowered. For an activist. Um, So, an activist in its its proxy filings has to say how much it's spending on on a proxy fight and different categories of of solicitation expenses. Um, And it appears as though those are not materially lowered um, for the same activists um, before and after Universal Proxy went into effect. And I think what's going on there is an activist is still going to need to wage a full fledged solicitation effort to shareholders which is still going to cost the same amount of money um, if it wants to be successful. So even though it is possible to kind of free ride off the company's solicitation, um, that isn't necessarily going to be the thing that, that wins the day with shareholders. So a lot of the fundamentals in these situations, I think, haven't really changed. You're going to have to have a compelling case for change. You're going to have to put money and a real solicitation effort behind it um and that's a high bar for many activists so a lot of the speculation about are you going to start seeing you know esg gadflies or the kind of shareholder proposal community start to nominate directors you, you might see that um but i'm not hundred percent convinced unless they're able to make that case for change and put all the money and resources behind the solicitation effort I'm not 100% convinced those are gonna be successful. And I think over time, even though you might see an uptick this year and next year in proxy fights being launched, I think as the success rates of those proxy fights don't actually increase, um, you might see new, new proxy fight launches normalize uh, back to where they were over time. So I think too early to call universal proxy uh, a complete game changer but certainly something, certainly a space we're watching uh, heading into 23.
0: Got it. And with that, I think that's all we have time for. Um, Chris, thank you so much for coming on The Exchange.
1: Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Megaphone, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.